Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. Eugene Manley has spent a lifetime learning about the science of lung cancer. People from communities that are disadvantaged often suffer disproportionately from respiratory conditions. In this podcast, Eugene Manley shares his perspective on what can be done to improve outcomes for communities still exposed to the noxious effect of tobacco and nicotine. Here to share his perspective is Eugene Manley. Eugene, you're very welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I'm honoured to spend the time with you. I want to start our conversation with understanding why healthcare matters to you. So go back to the very beginning. Go back to the young Eugene Manley. Why were you interested in healthcare? Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here and talk with you and your audience. And for me, it started probably when I was very young. When I grew up, there were two big things that sort of overlapped in in my early life. And one was my father was a very heavy consumer of tobacco products. And, you know, and I just saw the damage that that did long term. And also, I grew up as a chronic asthmatic with anaphylactic allergies. Now, I don't know if the early exposure to cigarettes drove that or not, but I pretty much, from four to about 10, I was in the hospital 20 to 30 times a year just for my asthma. I would go, they would give me IVs, some stuff, send me home, and then I'd be right back. And it was a miracle that I got out of childhood. I could just react to anything. I could be outside in grass in the summer. I would start wheezing. And I still, grass still will trigger my asthma. So it was just a lot of really looking at what happens to the body and the system. And the other thing was really um, just during my education, you know, and as I went through my degrees, I just saw all these programs that said they would help underrepresented scholars, mentorship, programming. But you look at me and other people from my background and other ethnicities, and we still often didn't get the support or the mentorship or the grants. And we often ended up not staying in academia because it was just fighting an uphill battle. I want to explore a little bit more about the family thing, because I'm fascinated by this. You had 20-something admissions as a young child, and your dad was a heavy smoker. At that time, in that community, was there any, and this was reasonably recent, was there any understanding that tobacco smoking was the cause of illness? It was the early 80s, so you know, there was still that phase where pretty much everyone in inner cities smoked cigarette products. And what a lot of people to this day don't realize is that in the inner city environments, a lot of black folks smoke menthol-flavored cigarettes, which have this cooling effect, one. And so what it does is when you inhale it, you think that the searing heat from the tobacco was not as bad. So then it becomes, okay, I can smoke these. These are, these are better than these other brands. But then you, the problem is when you have something that's sweet and cooling and you combine it with to, nicotine that's already addictive, then that makes it much harder for these people to break the habit. And so what has happened is, if we go back even to World War I, maybe World War II, the troops used to smoke a lot of the cigarettes 
And then all of a sudden, Big Tobacco realized that, hey, we can market to inner city environments. So then they started marketing in like, and it was even 70s, you know, Ebony, Jet, all these other magazines. And we had all kind of social issues in the U.S. at that time. And what was happening is these inner city environments still really couldn't get funding to do things for the communities. So tobacco ended up coming in and providing a lot of these funding to churches to allow them to do all these programs. So in essence, they be, they made the communities become dependent on that tobacco money because they these the, these places weren't able to get it from the city or the state. So it was sort of a feed forward mechanism. When your kid, everyone did it. Well, not kids, but you know the parents. So you don't realize how deleterious it could be. And then maybe you know late. 80s, early 90s, then there started to be more awareness about the dangers of secondhand smoke, all the particulate matters, and then there was still a battle to start getting things banned indoors, and that that was, I think, 99 or 2000, I was in San Fran, and they had banned indoor smoking there, and then it was sort of starting to go in other places, and, you know, and everyone at that time said, oh, well, this is not going to say, because who's not going to? go to the bar and, and, you know, smoke. But eventually it, it sort of became more uh, established. Now, it's a catch-22 about how well those campaigns were because, yes, the anti-smoking campaigns in the 80s were great, but they had a lot of stigmatizing language and, and victim-blaming. And so, on the one hand, yes, you had to reduce rates, but the unfortunate correlation or sometimes the jump that people have made is that if you have a history of smoking, that you then are responsible for getting lung cancer, which is not remotely the case. While it is a risk factor for lung cancer, it is not the sole factor and it's not the only factor. And unfortunately, lung cancer patients experience a lot of the stigma because people say, well, you deserve to get it. That's not really a valid reason. Even though my dad was a chronic smoker, I never sat there and said, Oh, you this you're gonna get no. I was just for me educationally, I looked at well, what's in cigarettes that are bad. And I started doing my first research projects just on the amount of tar and nicotine in cigarettes. And by chance I happened to start studying lung cancer. It wasn't solely per se because of my father. It just happened to be somehow my curiosity led me there. As a family physician in the UK in the eighties and nineties, I was aware that there was a connection between smoking and some of these childhood illnesses. So we spent a lot of time talking to the families of those children to say, one of the things that you could do as a family to reduce the risk is to minimize this child's exposure to cigarette smoking. First of all, did those conversations take place with your parents? And secondly, how would your parents have responded in that particular community? Those never really happened because my my father was probably out of that didn't live at our house after I was probably three or four. Always knew where he was, but he still was always consuming tobacco products. But when you're in inner cities, specifically in Detroit, and also many other inner city communities in the U.S., there's not just tobacco and smoke exposure. You know, if you just think of the historical redlining that has been done that have forced underrepresented populations to be in undesirable places, where they gutted many communities and put in the freeway system, which guess what? All the exhaust from the freeway, you know, you get put in places where they put the chemical plants because they don't put them in the more affluent areas. So they put it in areas where they know the people don't, may not know how to fight or have the money to fight back. 
And so you combine all this stuff on top of that. So there are many multiple structural systemic things in place on top of just that. And then if you look at just being in the U.S. in general, you know, we are now, even though we knew this a while ago, there's now at least more appreciation of the impact of social determinants of health on out people's outcomes and how they survive. We know where you live, your environment really can directly affect your ability to be healthy and to be happy. And, you know, with all inner city, there's a lot of stress. And then if you think about just racism that you face every day, that unless you live it and deal with it, it's really hard to contextualize for people. But every day you're worried, okay, you don't say it, but you think, what is going to happen? And what do I have to compartmentalize or what might happen to me? And then when you see things like George Floyd, that's just, that was a bad year for a lot of my friends. I mean, we all were calling each other and we never called each other. And we were like, are you okay? Because that was a bad year for all of us. That was a really bad year for us across the board, degrees or not. It was a bad year. It was a bad year, not just in the US, but a bad year across the world because many other communities were saying similar things, that they were saying that they were disenfranchised, they were disadvantaged, and they were underrepresented in a whole variety of ways which led to the poor outcomes. This brings us very much to the heart of our conversation. And one of the things that you champion is equality and certainly reducing the inequity, particularly in scholarship, of people who are able to assist. Where do you see the battle lines drawn on this issue? So if you were to empower somebody to stand up for their community, to research their community, you are effectively going against the folk who want to put the freeways through the housing areas, you want to build the factories in those areas, and suddenly you are empowering them to understand the impact of that. Where do you think we can begin to unpack those issues? I know this is going to sound like a tangent of an answer, but the answer, because it integrates with everything, is where we address workforce diversity. Because there's a significant lack of representation in academia and medicine and even pharma at leadership, senior leadership, board, director levels. We have a lack of representation that's in general staff. We have a lack of representation just of those from underrepresented, low-income, poor backgrounds that are even in academia. And so we aren't even getting them in and through degrees. And if we go even further back, at least in the U.S. and probably in other places, there are some Pew reports that showed Black and Latino kids that graduated high school in the U.S. still also reported having never seen anyone that looked like them in the duration of their education. So they never knew they could even do STEM or STEM programs. And so if you don't get that exposure early, then, you know, by the time you get to 10, 11, you've already found your way on other paths. So we really have to look at this whole spectrum. But if we wanted to really try to try to make a change and move the needle, we would have to probably start at that workforce diversity. And you could take any career stage, K to 12, undergrad, grad, professional. But I say at the undergrad, grad level is probably the biggest chance to make an impact because there's so few that get into college compared to those that could if they knew they could go. But then once they get in college, a lot of them are still first gen, low income. So they don't have the money or resources or know how to navigate these academic spaces. So they need, you know, to get that training and mentoring and how to navigate the academic space, how to find internships, fellowships, grants, 
similar things with the grad students, like how do you find a, an advisor that's going to actually be um, a champion for you? Because a lot of people look great on paper, but then you are trapped in places and then you can't leave. And then you're trying to get papers out, but you're not getting help. And then it looks like you're just slacking off, but it's like, it's hard to move on. So if we can really get those underrepresented scholars more active mentorship, more active mentoring, more helpful mentors, and really more, not just teaching the grant writing part, but these other aspects that you need, like life professional career skills. So like financial literacy, financial planning, thinking about job transitions, career transitions. Don't wait till they get to the end of that degree and then say, oh, what am I supposed to do next? Because when you're first in, you don't know what the next step is. And then you're still behind the ball. So we have to be more comprehensive about the holistic mentoring and really helping them go through those levels. And, and as we hopefully can get more into the workforce and in leadership, then we have more people that can advocate for more people coming in the back, coming behind them. But then if we get more leadership, then we can start getting more things acknowledged when you think about trials and research studies that really impact underserved communities. Because we still see all these massive tr clinical trials that still have massive underrepresentation. But that's because they're still done at primary medical centers. They don't have diverse staff. They aren't really in the underserved communities. And they aren't really trying to go to these underserved communities. So what you have happen is that you get a drug and they go, oh, we have to go back post-market. And guess what? You may have your Black or Hispanic patients have different adverse events. But because it was never put in when you did the basic study or your translational studies or your clinical studies, now you're trying to come back and try to fit a square peg into a cog. And it just doesn't happen. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. I want to think now about what change might look like. So it is true that there are still some, rep there is some representation of people who look like you and me in those kind of studies and those kind of environments where we potentially could make a difference. But of course, the whole employment structure is designed for somebody to do a particular job and to focus on the needs of the other communities may not be part of those KPIs. How do we assist those who are already there to step up and speak for their communities? It's tricky because we would love more people to speak up, but sometimes we're still in very hierarchical systems. And unless you're the one in complete control and in charge, there's only so much speaking up you can do before then you become a liability. And then, you know, then you're the one always under the microscope. So you have to always measure where, when, and how you respond to things and how you say them. Because what you say can be drastically misinterpreted, even though it's exactly what someone else might say. But because it comes from you, it sounds different. So it's really about how supportive your organization is from leadership to really thinking outside the box and listening to those varied views and different stakeholders. But if we keep doing what we currently do and just have our database on one 
race, ethnicity, one database, we're not going to make any effort, any change, or we're not going to address disparities or inequities. You're right, we're not, because essentially the system is designed to serve only that particular group. And therefore, if it's easier to recruit a particular ethnicity to clinical trials, you will recruit to that clinical trials because obviously that's the KPI for that particular grant. You need to deliver on the milestones, on the deliverables and all the rest of it, and you're not going to put the effort into finding a way to be inclusive. So how do we start to do that? How do we start to get a system that is more inclusive? Because it's going to take a bit more effort. It's going to take a bit more understanding of other communities for us to include them in the mix. The couple of ways we can do this, and one is those that are making the decisions sometimes need to recognize just because they're the leader of SpaceX does not mean they know everything and that it's their way or the highway. Other people have ways of understanding situations. And so you really should take those experiences from your people and learn what you can do better. Now, if we really want to make a difference for patient outcomes, then we need to have active, sustained, and intentional engagement in communities. And this means working with those groups that are most underserved, the worst disparities, with the worst outcomes, with the least access to care. You can't create a solution if you don't know the actual problem that the underserved community needs to be addressed. So that means you have to go to listen to your staff that are from these communities, listen to your patients, listen to your caregivers, listen to those vested community stakeholders and take what they say and then develop your programs and interventions based on their input. If you don't start from what the group needs, then nothing you create will matter and will make any difference. So what you're saying essentially is that if we want to make a difference, if you are serving a large community that includes a significant proportion of people from other races, other cultures, you need to make sure that you engage them if the overall organization is to succeed, because it's not going to succeed if you systematically do not serve the needs of the very people who your organization exists to serve. Exactly. And sometimes people just need to take off their degree hats and the hubris, for lack of a better term, and, and, you know, and just humble themselves and listen to those that need the help the most. So where to from here, Eugene? Where is your work taking you? How are you beginning to address some of these questions? Broadly, by training, I'm a mechanical engineer, I'm a biomedical engineer, and I'm a molecular and cell biologist. And so I've done a lot of stuff with cell culture, imaging, histology, and musculoskeletal biomechanics. And then after I transitioned out of academia, I said, okay, I don't want to be a professor anymore because, you know, it was just a slog to to get work done and try to get papers published. And I said, oh, how can I make an impact? Because, you know, I still did all this first gen low income. So I had no money when I was doing all these um, transitions for the postdoc. So it's like, you're underpaid, you work in 60 plus hours a week, and you are just like, what did I sign up for? And then you think, do I really want to do this the rest of my life? 
And so what ended up happening is that I transitioned to the nonprofit space. Now there were some things in between that transition. So I did, you know, a biotech course through the ACSB and I did an AACR translational science course for basic scientists. So those two things had happened within like six months of each other, but they gave me much broader depth and experience and exposure. And so that sort of helped lead me to my first job at the AACR where I worked in development. And then I transitioned to Lung Cancer Research Foundation where I did grant administration, scientific grant administration, science writing, and then to Longevity where I was the director of STEM workforce initiatives where I did pretty much a lot of our, I ran three health equity series in lung cancer. I did a lot of semi-recent engagement, trying to increase capacity building. I launched a minority mentorship and training program for our health equity scholars. And I oversaw several academic partnerships that gave first year med students from underrepresented backgrounds exposure to thoracic research. The ideal being that if we can get them exposure to thoracic early in their medical career, they might consider it as a specialty. And then what happened in between all that is, you know, I was doing a lot of speaking about workforce diversity, trial diversity, health equity, and, and what are, you know, the thing, the things that keep coming up is we talk about trial diversity, we talk about health equity, we talk about workforce, but the needles have not shifted any in the last 10 years. And so I decided to create my own nonprofit called STEM and Cancer Health Equity, or the short version is SCHEQ, S-C-H-E-Q. And it's really broadly focused on increasing STEM workforce diversity and improving outcomes for underrepresented, underserved, and marginalized patients across the cancer care continuum. How can people be engaged more broadly? Where can we begin to address these issues for other conditions? You talk about social determinants of health. Is that somewhere we need more work? Yes, there's a lot of things we can do in SDOH. It's now being more recognized. Now people are looking at upstream factors, downstream factors, where you live, where you breathe versus where you work, where you eat, and sort of, but you know, the challenge becomes trying to integrate studies across those areas because some are very much cell level, some are population level, some are just solely environmental. The other big question is how do you get different fields to intersect when they may call use different terminology? That's the biggest challenge right now. The hardest thing to you, the reason we don't have normalization yet is because you're in one space, you're a sociologist, you may use one term. If you're in public health, you might use another term. If you're a molecular biologist, you use another term. And how do we get a publication and you know out when if you are urging from different angles and look about what your reviewers might be thinking. And so, and then you get caught in, you know, do we say black or do we say African-American? Do we say race versus ethnicity? And so then you get all these other complex issues. So it's still very complex, but there's some progress being made, but there are at least now more funding to do these more system-wide approaches. And not just in lung cancer. There's a lot of stuff in other disease spaces, but also in other cancers. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare.
I want to take you back, Eugene, to the start of our conversation when you talked about your dad, you talked about the cigarette smoking, the menthol, and this little boy who was in and out of hospital. If you were to look forward the next 10, 15, 20 years, how is history not going to repeat itself? How are we going to get to the point where that little boy is not ending up in hospital and that man realizes that the cigarettes are doing him some harm? Well, we would love to say history does not repeat itself, but well, we know the answer to that is that it always does. And so we can tell you what you should and shouldn't do or you or should be aware of, but you know, people are still going to do what they want because they want to. Now, the whole thing in the 80s was smoking history, and now we have a whole new generation that are doing vaping, marijuana, all these other products. And long term, we don't know what the results are going to be. We can speculate, keyword speculate, because we just don't have the data, hard data. And, you know, we saw some people, we see some people with popcorn lung. But, but you know, longer term, there's likely going to be a deleterious effect. But until we get that 10, 15 years down the road, we can't say it. But you think about it, if there's already like probably 600 plus products, if not more, in cigarettes. Just think about all those components in vaping cartridges. There's already more irritating and searing that's probably even more toxic to the lungs. So it's just a question of, we just can't say it caused lung cancer because we have no evidence yet. But I say maybe 10, 15, 20 years, if we can start getting studies to look at this, because there'll be enough at this point the way THC is getting normalized, we'll have a, I mean, I, I don't mean to be flipped, but we'll have enough of a population that we can start addressing the question. So on the one hand, we did get away from a lot of the, at least in the U.S., the heavy reliance on tobacco products, but now we just have this new wave. And then, and even though we thought we passed cigarettes, they just, they did the FDA ban on menthol but it's still not really banned. There's still, I think it's either menthol flavoring or menthol additive that still can be in cigarettes. So we're still playing cat and mouse trying to get rid of that stuff. And, and the thing is, you know, I, I live in New York and you can walk down the street and you can see a, a hookah shop, a weed shop, a vape shop in like every corner. I'm like, are we reliving the 80s? It's like every corner, I'm like, this is overkill. It's, and it's really frustrating. <laughs> it's really frustrating. Animation, even playing on anime characters, just, you know, bright coloring. And it's like, we did not learn anything. You were very eloquent in what you described earlier. You said that it was First and Second World War. The smoking became a cool thing to do. There was marketing to black communities. The churches got involved. It was clear that they had specifically targeted that particular population to do that particular thing for the sake of the dollar. It was for the sake of making a profit. What we need to figure out is how do we break that cycle so we are no longer vulnerable to that kind of marketing, whatever culture, whatever color, whatever community we come from, because they will, if there's money to be made, they'll find a way to make it. Yes. And so that really requires those of us with the degrees and education to be able to go back 
to the community groups, to health fairs, to schools, just talking about the things that we see, what can be done, what can be done, and doing it in without the the doctor or MD hat. Like talk to people like you like they want to be talked to. Don't 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 use high end terms. Meet people where they are and show you understand, and and they'll listen. But if you have to remove the ego and really be willing to just listen to what they're saying, and you take that to heart, and that and then help and do implement things, and hopefully you can, that will make changes. Of course, when we try to do this kind of stuff, it's still hard to get funding for it. Maybe the preparation of the people who will be needed to make the difference needs to change, not just that they are, we're producing the same cookie-cutter type of scholar. We need to produce scholars who talk differently, sound differently, but have yeah. an understanding of the epidemiology, have an understanding of the marketing and the other disciplines that are being deployed against their community and find a way to solve those problems. Yes, indeed. And I do know one group, U of Illinois Chicago, has a citizen scientist program where they really would go out and train the community to be advocates for their healthcare. So then they can come back and then ask research teams, what about this? What about this? So, and we need more programs like that where we go train the community to then advocate for themselves. And then it eventually become a feed forward mechanism, but it just takes time. It takes time and funding and resources things that are always never in abundance for those who need it most. Indeed. But what we need more than that is people like you, Eugene Manley, with the energy, with the drive, with the vision, with the understanding of the f challenges that we face. It's been an honor spending time with you. You are out to make a difference, and we're right there with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. Really great to just talk about my life and what I've seen and and the stuff I'm trying to make a difference of and how we can broadly help the most underserved. Because that's what it's really about. How can we help people so that they don't have to unnecessarily suffer? The Health Design Podcast. Serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.